I had one fellow president who insisted to me that he read the full file in every single grant. And I just, I didn't say no. anything. But I thought, That's completely baloney. <laughs> there is no yeah. way you're doing that. And as I say, it's, it's as it should be. My role is at the strategy level. Hey everyone, I'm Emily Collins-Ellis, and welcome to What Donors Want, a podcast by IG Advisors. I'm the Managing Director here at IG, and we're a London-based social impact strategy consultancy on a mission to bridge the gap between fundraisers, businesses, and philanthropists. At IG, we have unique access to both donors and fundraisers, and we want to help them better understand each other. And so we bring you season three of What Donors Want, our fresh, dynamic, and slightly irreverent view into major gifts fundraising from the donor's perspective. In each episode, we'll interview a donor and get right down to it. What do they actually want from the fundraisers who cultivate them? This advice and more straight from the donor's mouth. Hey everyone, welcome to season three of What Donors Want. My name is Rachel Stephenson Chef. I'm the producer and host of the show, and I'm recording this introduction, of course, from my home during the COVID-19 pandemic. So, f- of course, first and foremost, we hope that you're all well and safe and healthy as you listen to this. What a time we are in. There really are no words. We've, we've heard them all, but I suppose it's a good time to be launching a virtual resource like this um, that can help build capacity in the sector. So really thrilled to be in your headphones today. So listeners of the show will know that we just wrapped up season two a few weeks ago with a recap episode of our favorite insights. So do check that out. And also just to say, if if at IG we can ever be helpful over a virtual coffee, please do reach out to us. All of our information is on the website and and we always encourage and, and love when listeners email us. So now we are officially in season three of What Donors Want and really excited to kick it off with a unique episode. Before we dive in, I want to send a huge shout out and thank you to our official season three sponsor, the Siegel Family Foundation. We're so thrilled to be continuing our partnership with you and and really grateful for all of your support. Okay, so now on to today's conversation. So the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation is no stranger to fundraisers. Based in California, it's one of the largest philanthropic institutions in the United States. They award roughly 400 million US dollars in grants per year to organizations across the globe, from grassroots to multilateral institutions. And if you're a longtime listener of What Donors Want, you'll recognize the Hewlett Foundation way back from our very first episode ever in June 2017. We had the pleasure of interviewing Alfonsina Peñalosa, Hewlett's Program Officer for Global Development and Population. And P.S., that conversation still remains to be the most listened episode of What Donors Want ever. It's a really good one. So now as we enter into season three of the show, we're thrilled to be bringing it back full circle, but this time with a twist. So I was joined on the show by Alfonsina again, but this time she was my co-host. And together, we interviewed Hewlett's president, Larry Kramer, to understand the unique and different role he has from a leadership perspective. Larry's been the president of the Hewlett Foundation since 2012, and since joining, he's written and spoken about issues related to effective philanthropy, including the importance of collaboration among funders and also the need to provide grantees with long-term support. He frequently lectures and writes about broad societal issues from global climate change to the challenge of maintaining democratic government in the 21st century. He really is an incredible thought leader. I love reading his work, so really encourage you to check it out. 
And actually, before joining the Hewlett Foundation, Larry's background was primarily in the legal sector. He was the dean of Stanford Law School, so that's pretty interesting as well. I'll also note, we recorded this episode pre-COVID-19, so that's why we don't actually reference the pandemic in our conversation. Of course, if we had recorded it now, we would have. But what can you do? And and also just to note that sometimes the Wi-Fi connection did get a bit shaky. So there are moments throughout the episode where the sound quality isn't as good as it could have been. But uh, it's kind of the nature of, of global podcast recording. So please bear with us. You can still understand everything. So it's it's no big deal. Anyways, it was a really awesome conversation. I really enjoyed the opportunity to speak with Larry and to speak with Alfonsina again. So we hope you enjoy. Welcome, Larry, to What Donors Want, to this very special episode of Hewlett Part 2. We're so thrilled to have you on the show. And Alfonsina, it's such a pleasure to be co-hosting with you. Thank you. It's really, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm really happy to have the chance to talk to everybody. Thank you for having me back, Rachel. It's my pleasure. So to start the interview today, Larry, as, as you may know, we, we begin each episode off with something that actually has nothing to do with fundraising or philanthropy, and it's called the kind of speed round of questions. And the whole idea, the genesis of this is that we really want to promote to fundraisers that donors are just people, you know, whether they work in big institutions and they're the president of, of global institutions like Hewlett or whether they're individual donors, we're all just people with kind of the same preferences and interests. So we've got a series of 10 questions that we're going to speed fire at you. And you can just say the first thing that comes to your mind. And then we will get into the, the meteor philanthropic stuff. Does that sound okay? Sure. Okay, fabulous. <laughs> so question number one is from me. Larry, if you could have any superpower, what would it be? I, I, I think read people's minds. Ooh, that's an interesting yeah. one. That would be terrifying for me. I agree. Well, I, I wouldn't want I people want to read one. mine. Yeah, and I, <laughs> exactly. And I, you can turn it up. And I get to control it. Yeah, yeah. But but it'd be nice to know what other people were thinking. Fair I'll enough. keep this in mind, Larry. <laughs> this is helpful information. All right, next one's from me. What was the last show you binged? Uh, Goliath, which is... Uh, uh, a lawyer show. On, uh, oh, yeah. So word on the block is that you're a bit of a punk rock fan. So we're wondering which city has the better music scene, London or New York? Well, it depends on which decade you're talking about. So Good in the point. 60s, it was probably London. In the 70s, it was definitely New York. In the 80s, it was probably Los Angeles, actually. Mm. And then, of course, after that, there is no longer music I love. <laughs> That's so sad. <laughs> so following on from that, Larry, Sex Pistols or Ramones? I'm a Sex Pistols fan. Although, you know, they were both great, but and the Sex Pistols were only there for like five minutes. True. So we also know that you're a big Beatles fan. If you had to choose one song, which would it be? Hey Jude or Let It Be? Oh, so first you can't ask me to do that. I'm actually not a big <laughs> Beatles fan. You also pick two Paul songs. So, you know, part of me wants to go neither, but it would probably, if I had to choose between those two, it would certainly be Hate You. Fair. All right. I am definitely looking forward to the holidays to get some reading that is not work-related. So, Larry, do you have any books that you're looking forward to reading over the, over the holiday period? Not work-related, though. I'm, I'm actually, I just read Middlemarch for the first time, which was amazing. Hmm. And I'm looking at to read a book called The Topeka School by Ben Lerner, which is supposed to be really good. Very cool. Um, what is one place that you want to travel to that you haven't yet had a chance to visit? 
Actually, Prague. I've never been to Prague. I really want to go there. There's a million places, but, you know, for cities, Prague. I'd love to go to Cambodia. I've never been there. But, yeah, I think, let's say Prague. All right. What was the last great meal you ate, Larry, and where did you eat it? Oh, my. I can't think of a great meal I've had recently. So I don't actually go out. You know, I'm a street food person when push comes to shove. So I actually like takeout food that you can get quickly and stuff like that. There is a place called uh, Rich T- Rich's Table in San Francisco, which mm-hmm. has really unusual meals that, that I was at about a month ago that I thought was pretty amazing. So since you're a Star Wars slash Star Trek fan, if you could have one mentor, would it be Mr. Spock or would it be Yoda? Spock, no question. I'm more a Star Trek fan than a Star Wars fan. Looking forward to the movie, nevertheless. But I've got to obviously not let people into my office anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Well, speaking of street food, we're going to have to get you to Mexico, Larry, soon because that hype would venture to say we have some of the best street food in the world but to wrap and up and it is section, my favorite my favorite kind of street food well we'll have to make that work i think we can make that work Mary. all right last question coffee or tea coffee i almost never drink tea oh interesting well you have officially survived the speed round that is it thank you for indulging us in that i think listeners always yeah. really appreciate this part of the episode well, I will say I could have gone on at length on any of those questions, in particular the music ones, but I kept it speedy. Ah, (laughs) well, you know, so now we can, I guess, go into length on some some more philanthropic questions and really understanding your role at Hewlett and and what fundraisers should be mindful of in that context. So to kick us off on part two, Larry, as president of the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, can you give us an overview of your primary responsibilities in this role? Well, I mean, first is obviously to oversee the overall operations internally and externally. I'm the essentially the primary liaison with the board. I would say about 30% of my time is, is that. A large chunk goes to representing the foundation externally in philanthropy events in particular. And then, of course, working with all of the programs and departments on their particular goals and ends. And, you know, I don't, I would be like arrogant to say I set the vision, but I think I'm responsible for for sort of consolidating what the foundation represents. Yeah, that's super interesting. And we're definitely going to dive into that more in in just a few questions. What is your favorite thing about your job and also your least favorite thing? My favorite thing for sure is just when I get a chance to really dig in with with people on the on the foundation strategies or work. Although for me, it's as much fun doing it on the administrative side as well. That is to say, problem solving, right? People come with sort of, how do we do this? And the least fun part is fairly often I have to do ceremonial stuff, you know, introduce people, do toasts, all those kinds of things. I have always hated that. It's just, it never feels natural or comfortable. So it's my last job too. It was my least favorite part of the job. Yeah, it's fair enough. And some listeners might be surprised to hear that you actually have a really strong legal background. So you were a constitutional law scholar and the former dean of Stanford Law School, which is very unique. So how did you transition into philanthropy from that world? And how does that affect the way that you approach the nonprofit space? Yeah, well, not so unique. You know, my predecessor had exactly the same background. <laughs> but um, 
but the two of us are somewhat unique. So for me, the big shift was uh, going from being a full-time academic to being a dean. As a full-time academic, I could basically do what I wanted. I could work on the articles I wanted. I could pretty much teach the classes I wanted after a while and teach them as I thought best. You know, I was very much a lone operator. I mean, I could work with other people, but only if and when I wanted to. Becoming a dean really meant giving all that up. And the basic job of a dean is essentially you sit on top of a pile of resources. And your job is to make them available to students, to faculty, to staff, to whoever, in order to enhance what they're doing or trying to do. So as I understood it, the move from being a dean to being a foundation president was actually a pretty natural move because in that sense, it's pretty much the same job. Right. That's super interesting. Mm. I hadn't really thought about that. Larry, obviously, I know a lot about your role since we've been colleagues for quite a number of years, uh, but I think some listeners would be surprised or wouldn't be aware of the fact that as president, you don't interact with many grantees directly since these relationships are held mostly by program officers like me. You just gave a brief overview of your role and described that it's a lot inward facing. And I think it requires a lot of trust between you and the directors and the program officers and the board, something that at Hewlett we call the Hewlett way. Is it difficult for you to be some steps removed from the ground? And how does that inform your leadership style? Yeah. So sometimes it, it's less difficult now than it was in the early years, because in the early years, I often felt like, what am I doing? I don't do anything. You know, I have no role here at meetings. <laughs> Yeah, I've come to understand better the ways in which my role does play out. But, you know, what you say is exactly right. I mean, I'm essentially three or four steps removed from the frontline work that the grantees are actually doing. And for me to manage that, I actually have to make sure I don't know too much. If I know too much, I'm going to, you know, develop strong ideas and it's going to be that much harder for me to do what I have to do, which is essentially defer to the program directors and program officers who are, in fact, much more expert at what they're doing than I am. And so it's sort of finding that place where I know enough that I feel like I understand what they're doing and can exercise my role appropriately without without getting in their faces or pushing them to do things that they don't want to do, because you're not going to get good people to work for you. If, you, if you're telling them how to do their jobs too much. Mm. That's really interesting. I think, especially from a fundraising perspective, I think that's such insight for listeners, which is, you know, as Alfonsina said, as president, you actually are several steps removed away from the ground, but also the people that are making the key decisions, so the directors and program officers. And so often we hear fundraisers just trying to get to the most senior person they can, which can mm. oftentimes, you know, be effective because you, obviously you need to, to some extent in, interact with someone who can make decisions but at the same time the people who actually hold those decisions aren't who you might think so i think that's a really useful takeaway for fundraisers listening is that you know directors and program officers are really important to build relationships with in addition or perhaps instead of in some cases then senior leadership and kind of executive level i would actually say instead of in almost all cases yeah i think that's really that's really important thank you for sharing that so listeners, take that in, instead of, this is the, the, the firm word. So in August 2019, Hewlett announced a cross-foundational indirect cost policy. And that's something that aims to support, you know, quote unquote, the true cost of nonprofits work. And, and obviously this was something that you very much led, Larry. So can you tell listeners a little bit more about this new policy? You know, it's not actually a new policy at Hewlett. 
we have always had sort of two practices. One was with rare exceptions for universities, which are unique. We did not have an indirect cost recovery formula. We always left it to the program officer and the grantee to work out on a case-by-case basis. What changed were two things. One was, you know, we'd all read that study a bunch of years ago about the nonprofit starvation cycle, but Bridgespan came out with some empirical work it was you know, pretty shocking about the extent of the shortfall, which you know their findings were at a minimum 23%, I think, at a maximum as much as 65% shortfall in what the grants were actually paying for the work. And you know that led Bridgespan then approached a group of foundations. Did we want to do something more on that? And, and you know, we thought we hadn't really looked closely at our own practice to see how well we were doing at it. So, so that was the process for us. So we haven't, in some sense, changed our policy so much as deepened our commitment to making sure we're actually executing it appropriately. Mm-hmm. And in practice, what does this new, you know, our policy or framework mean for Hewlett's current and future grantee partners? What should they be mindful of? So it means a bunch of things. One is, on both their end and our end, we're really trying to up everybody's game in terms of actually understanding what indirect costs are, what they you know, what the actual indirect costs are. And on both sides, you know, there's a lot of grantee organizations that don't actually know what their costs are or don't really have a great deal of sophistication in figuring them out. It's the same thing on our side. A lot of the program staff, you know, they didn't come from finance, so they're not necessarily very good at that. So we have to improve everybody's ability to do that. We're instituting trainings for ourselves, and we're going to try and make some resources available to grantees. Second is it only works if you can then have really honest conversations about, you know, you had these articles that showed, you know, project grants, which are overwhelmingly the kinds of grants that are made in the sector, are routinely falling short, and nobody was going out of business. So the question was, how are they surviving them? And some ways were bad, you know, using what little general resources they had for this. In some ways, I think people were building into direct costs, things that were really indirect costs. They were lowballing. You know, there was a whole lot of not being fully honest both ways stuff going on. So it's, can we also recreate a culture in which people really can sit down and honestly figure out what these full costs are, what these true costs are, and then, and then we want to pay them. Mm-hmm. It's, it's going to be a process. It's really a reacculturation on all sides. Absolutely. I think your point there about honesty is a really interesting and a very challenging one as well, because so often the reasons why nonprofits aren't honest, you know, quote unquote, is because they're nervous that if by being truly honest about the true costs, as you say, that funders might, you know, run away in the opposite direction. So it's, there's kind of a a responsibility of funders to give that permission for that. And it's not, it's not helped by the fact that, you know, put aside the big institutional funders, there's a lot of funders you know, who actually buy into this notion that, you know, if your overhead is above some small amount, then you're inefficient. As an, they're not looking at the actual impact, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, what's the dollars in? What's the impact out? That's all you should be looking at. I, there's no reason we should care about the internal management of people's dollars. It's why we have a big commitment to not doing it that way and providing our funding in an unrestricted manner as much as possible. But, you know, there is this myth out there, the overhead myth that's pushed by a whole lot of people. And that makes it really difficult. 
if you're a nonprofit because you don't know who buys into it and who doesn't. You don't yeah. know, even if you're talking to somebody who doesn't, if somebody who does hears about that grant that you got X percent, they may be less likely to fund you. So, so yeah. it's a change across the whole culture. Yeah, a hundred percent. It's it's a huge challenge for nonprofits that you know every single client that we've ever worked with really in, in the fundraising space. And, you know, as you say, this kind of overhead myth or, or finding these unrestricted multi-year partnerships is still very much a holy grail for so many fundraisers and nonprofits out there. And, and it's really amazing that Hewlett is part of the wave that's leading the charge in this more equitable direction. Well, Let's, again, you know, yeah. Hewlett has always, I mean, the, since the very beginning, since Bill Hewlett started the foundation, Hewlett has always had a strong commitment to providing multi-year general operating support. And it has always been the vast majority of the grants that we make. It's still about 70% of our grants are unrestricted. Now, they might be to a program within a larger organization that has multiple programs, but it'll be unrestricted within that program. So we're trying not to micromanage grantees' budgets, but just give them the resources they need to do the things that we mutually want to do. Absolutely. And Larry, for fundraisers who are sitting in the seat, you know, of a, an organization that has yet to identify this holy grail funder, or maybe they're in conversations and they're not sure which side of this fence their donor sits on, so they're not sure that the donor is going to give them unrestricted, flexible support in the way that you do, what fundraising advice would you have for them? And what can a fundraiser actually do to encourage a funder in this more flexible direction? Sure. Well, my first piece of advice is one that no one ever takes which is for the grantees to recognize that actually they have, if not quite as much power, a lot more power on their side than they recognize. All we can do is give grants for other people to do our work. We pick the grantees who we think can do it best. And if that grantee doesn't do it, we have to go to somebody who we don't think is as good. That's why we picked the one that we did. So for a grantee to come back and say, I can't do it for that amount of money. I need a larger amount of money to actually you know, cover the costs of what you want me to do is to lead to a conversation in which I don't want to just say, well, no, take it or leave it. I'll go to somebody else because that somebody else is less good from my perspective. So that's one. Just recognize that and so be more willing to push for what you actually need. But be honest and fair about that. I, I never think it's a good idea to negotiate by asking for a lot more than you actually need and, and hoping you'll end up somewhere in the middle. I think you ask for what it is that you actually need and you explain why you need it, and that should work. Um, so that's that's my first piece of advice. Um, the second, I, I do think grantees can help educate funders, not alone, but just, you know, the whole notion of, of these highly restricted project support is, is bizarre, right? There's no other place in the economy where people do things that way. You don't do that when you buy a cup of coffee. You don't do it when you hire an architect or a doctor for services. And, and the reason is because what you're doing is you're saying, is this a fair amount that I'm willing to pay for what I'm going to get? And I don't, why should I care about, you know, all this? It's like going into Starbucks and saying, okay, you want two fifty for that cup of coffee. The coffee costs four cents. The cup is three cents. The labor is 24 cents. So I'll give you that. Plus I'll give you another four cents for everything else. I mean, you, who would do that? You wouldn't think to do that. So there's this strange thing we need to change in our culture, you know, more broadly, just to really get it to reflect what it is we care about and get people to recognize that in trying to, what they think they're doing is squeezing maximum efficiency out of their dollars. They're actually creating much greater inefficiencies. 
for themselves and the grantees. Completely agree. If I can add, Rachel, I think one of the most unhelpful conversations is when a grantee, and I've having been a grantee before, I've done this, when they ask, you know, well, how much should I build the budget for? And they ask for a number. And I think that sets up the stage for a terrible conversation between funders because instead of actually costing what a project would would be, you're just adjusting to a particular number. Now, of course, if a funder has that amount, then I think you need to build a project which actually is commensurate to that amount. But I just think that what you just said, Larry, resonated so much with me in terms of these conversations, which seem completely off the mark in terms of just even efficiency. If that is the goal, I don't think those conversations are efficient either. Yeah. One of the things, by the way, we do at Hewlett, we we don't have a rule, but we lean heavily towards finding program officers who have been in nonprofits so that they have some sense of how this really works. I love that. I, I think it's so it's so important and it's I, I wish more foundations were were doing that. And I think there's definitely a shift in conversation at the moment. But I, I think that's an amazing approach. And Larry, I love what you said about kind of reframing the power dynamic, saying that the grantee is actually bringing so much value to the to the relationship as an, and is in essence the service provider, so to speak, or the kind of broker to the impact that donors want to see. So, Larry, at Hewlett, we have many different strategic focus areas for our grant making. We have different programs like education, environment, the program that I'm in, global development and population, and many others. And even though our endowment in philanthropic assets is quite large. The challenges that the world faces and that we're trying to solve through our grantees are massive and complex and really impossible to solve alone. So can you walk us through how the foundation chooses which areas to invest in? Maybe give the listeners a little bit of a sense of how Hewlett goes about establishing and reviewing these priority areas and what your particular role as president is in this process. Sure. So for me, the first thing to understand is it's not my money, it's not the board's money, it's not the staff's money, right? This is something we hold in trust from the humans. And when they established the foundation, they had particular things that they cared about. And over many, many years, those are what crystallized into our core programs. So the the sort of core legacy programs, which I think are the ones that you named education, environment, what was population, and now it's really more focused on global development, uh, performing arts in, in the Bay Area. And in in some ways, that provides us with a really useful starting point for where our interests should be. So I view those as enduring commitments. They're all really important fields in their own right. And and then the question is, you know, we're not never starting from scratch. So we're working on things within those areas, particular strategies that are either coming along or they're not. The goals still seem relevant or they don't. So the ongoing conversation that we have inside the foundation is, in a sense, always a conversation with our past. You know, Alfonsina's heard me say this on numerous occasions. I don't think of myself as an originalist in constitutional law, like you don't just keep doing what the founders did because they did it. Nor do I think of myself as what in law is sometimes called an interpretivist, where you sort of look at the world today in light of your understanding of moral theory and do what you think. I think we're somewhere in between, which is we're in, the, in this conversation with our past, which has put us on various paths. And our task is to make sure that we, while staying true to the values underlying those choices, are making as big a difference as we can. And you can look at the evolution of of all of our strategies that way. On the side, we have these extra resources 
which have, you know, we've carved out to make available for other kinds of things, but those are shorter term efforts. Usually, I mean, they're still not short term, they may be five, 10 years, climate is gonna last longer than that. But even those in my mind need to be in some way linked to the larger work of the foundation. So if you look at the democracy work, the Madison Initiative, the digital disinformation work, the work on political economy, all of that, you know, in my mind was necessary to facilitate everything else we're trying to do because it all connects in some form or another to public policy. And if you can't move public policy because your political system is collapsing or because your public is massively misinformed, then you're not going to accomplish anything. So they're important in their own right, but they're also still linked to the to the larger historical trends and values of the foundation. And Larry, is there ever a role for nonprofit organizations to help influence the foundation strategy? And what, what does that look like? Well, if we're doing this right, our program staff don't kind of sit in Menlo Park by themselves, make decisions, and then just tell grantees what to do. I mean, we do try and work in partnership with the grantees, so it's a process of mutual learning at all times. We're learning from them in terms of their work, what's working, what's not, where we may need to make changes. They're very engaged in their own world. And at the same time, not just our grantees, but all of the program staff and the grantees are parts of larger networks. So mm. you're also engaging at all times with other kinds of organizations. And you, you see this reflected in the strategies and the way they've shifted over, say, the last few years while I've been there in response to political developments. That was from both our, our perceptions, the perceptions of our grantees, and the perceptions of organizations that we weren't yet funding, you know, coming to us and saying, look, here's the world, here's what needs to happen. And, you know, those conversations are the ways in which this work always, always takes shape. Yeah, I just had a meeting in Mexico with some of our grantees there, and somebody asked me a question about how do we define a particular concept in the transparency field? And it was an interesting question to me because it, well, it's, it, to me, it seems so obvious that it's informed by the work of our grantees. And so I turned the question back and I said, well, how do you define it? Because how you define it informs how we define it. And it seems that that's something that we need to be able to, to communicate much better, that, that there's no separation in a way between grantees in, in the way that it seems, grantees and funders in terms of strategy setting. Larry, this is a question that I've been super intrigued by. So do you as president experience tensions between being an individual contributor to strategies? So for example, for our listeners to know that you've been very involved in the Madison Initiative and the cybersecurity initiatives that you just mentioned and in a developing initiative on political economy. So do you ever feel a tension between contributing to those strategies and at the same time being a more inward facing manager? So it's the same tension that I talked about earlier about not knowing too much and figuring out where to stop and turn things over to staff. You know, with respect to Madison, cybersecurity, and the new work on political economy, I started those myself, right? They were not yet part of the foundation, and I spent a year or two in each case doing my own exploratory grant-making with, you know, special projects funds in order to decide whether I thought there was a strategy there. Particularly in the case of Madison and cybersecurity, I came to the foundation, you know, with a lot of knowledge. I mean, those had really been the issues raised had been very much a part of my career before coming to the foundation. And it was, you know, 
that so it's part of the reason I was interested, but it was part of the reason I had talked about those issues with the board when I was applying for the job. And so they knew coming in, they had sort of signed on for someone to explore those issues. So in both cases, I got to that point where, okay, it's time to turn this into some kind of initiative, which means hiring staff and then having to step back. And so, yes, that was hard. In particular, it was hard in the case of the Madison Initiative because that was my first experience with it. Fortunately, you know, Daniel Stid, who directed, is super strong in his field and, you know, was more than willing to manage me as I backed off. <laughs> so now, you know, I try and approach it as I do with all of the other ones, which is enough to be a useful and contributor to the strategic conversations but not enough to get so much in people's faces that they feel like I'm just telling them what they're supposed to do. Part of that requires at the end of the day saying, look, here's what I think, but the decision is yours and whatever you do, honestly, I will back it. You know, I'll go with that. So don't worry about that. That way I can feel comfortable participating without having to worry too much about them actually just doing something because they think I want them to. Yeah, and I think you do a great job at making sure that what you're voicing is is clear that it's not necessarily an instruction and i think certainly part of the hewlett way in the same way that program officers manage relationships with grantees which is exactly the same yeah you know we we know enough about the field to ask some questions and maybe provide some guidance but very mindful that if we're providing some insight or or advice that it is not taken as this is what the funder told me what to do right I think it's so interesting to hear both of you reflect on that from your different roles because, you know, it, there is definitely a kind of a, a common nervousness among nonprofits to understand how and if they can influence, you know, a, a foundation strategy where it's appropriate to push back. And, you know, if a funder, funder has a, a recommendation or an idea, then there is kind of a, a halo effect around that and they're, they're nervous not to take that forward. So I think it's really interesting to get it a kind of behind the scenes look of the curtain of how you set strategy decisions because there is a very clear opportunity for nonprofits to play a very active role in that and particularly your grantee partners. And I think from a fundraising advice perspective, you know, investing in thought leadership, investing in having really strong and informed and unique opinions on a certain social impact topic is an important investment in fundraising as well as it is one in impact. That is what, when we talk about the Hewlett Way, it derives from the HP Way, which, you know, the core premises of the HP Way, where you find really good people, you give them the support to do their work. Mm -hmm. We sort of view it that way all the way down, you know, within limits. I mean, it still has to be an actual conversation, right? So it's not as though we just, you know, like, sure, whatever you want. But but at the end of the day, you're really trying to empower them. Absolutely. And for listeners who are curious about what those conversations might look like with a program officer, I just encourage them to listen to Alfonsina's episode, the first, very first episode of What Donors Want, because Alfonsina, you spoke at great length and in really, really interesting um, and honest ways about those kinds of conversations and what makes your life easier, but also how you want to support partners. And it was, it's just, it was an amazing conversation and there's loads of advice there. So definitely check that episode out as one to listen to alongside this one. So moving on to talk about decision-making, because obviously that is a very, very important, you know, it's kind of the, the crux of fundraisers' ambitions when it comes to engaging with a foundation like yours. And, you know, Alfonsino, when we spoke a few years ago, you spoke a lot about what due diligence looks like from your perspective as a program officer. And 
Larry, so you've also spoken, you know, in, in the past several minutes about how you gave that very clear direction that grantees should be really cultivating program officers and maybe directors instead of, as you said, the kind of C-suite leadership of the institution. So, for example, um, yourself as president. So I'm just wondering to to fully clarify, what stage of the process of making big grant decisions does your role come into the picture, if at all? Uh, formally, I have I have to finally sign off on every single grant, but it's, it's funny, remember the staff just asked that same question, it's like, what value add are you providing for the grant team? <laughs> you know, and, and the answer is, at the individual grant decision, hopefully none, right? If I'm getting involved, something has gone wrong. Yeah. So, I take at least some kind of look at every single grant, but I'm not involved at all in the making of any individual grant decisions other than my own special projects grants. Um, I can't tell you how much time is wasted when people, it's really frustrating how many people come to me. You know, it's always like, you, there's no reason to talk to me. Let me put you in touch with the program officer or program director who works on that because they're going to make the decision. I'm not going to. Would you say that that's relatively common across your peers at different foundations? Uh, it has to be certainly at all the big foundations. There's just no way you have the time or capacity to know what you need to know in order to do that. I had one fellow president who insisted to me that he read the full file in every single grant, and I just I didn't say no. anything. I thought, That's completely baloney. <laughs> there is no yeah. way you're doing that. And as I say, it's it's as it should be. My role is at the strategy level, right, and at the kind of helping people make sure that we're fulfilling the broader requirements of how we think we're supposed to be doing philanthropy, mm-hmm. not at the individual grant level. That's really, really useful insight. And can you speak a little bit about the board? So does the board come into decision making and, and how can you give the listeners a sense of how you might work with them to help take grant decisions? Sure. And here I think the Hewlett Foundation is a little different. So the board's role also is at the strategy level. They used to actually approve every single grant, but now they only approve grants over a million dollars. And even there, it's with a huge amount of deference. And whereas I'm actively engaged in the construction of the strategy, the board's role is more reactive. So we bring the strategies to them for their input. They do view themselves appropriately as responsible for ensuring that what we're doing is consistent with the large long-term values of the foundation. But they're not telling us what to do so much as asking us to tell them what to do mm-hmm. and then responding to that. That is also very unique. And, and it's the Hewlett way, as you say. It's very clearly reflected in all levels of your management. Yeah, it's a fantastic board. Yeah. Because the input they provide is still helpful. And in, in some instances, really, really strong and important. But it always comes with a kind of deference to leaving the ultimate decision to the staff. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. And Alfonsina as well, feel free to jump in on this next one because you are a decision maker in the foundation. So, you know, a- any grant that the foundation makes is inherently one that you cannot make to another grantee, right? So, you know, in other words, all of the decisions that Hewlett makes are, are made, not made in a void, but they have repercussions in terms of, you know, the other things that you might be able to not fund as a result. So I'm wondering, you know, as president and, and as program officer, how do you experience and navigate the implications of, of big decisions like that? Well, from my perspective, yeah, that's what the program officers have to make those judgments ultimately. I mean, there are limited resources and they have to figure out how to make the most effective use of them. My role 
in that respect, I mean, it, that, that feeds directly into the diversity, equity, and inclusion issue. So we want to make sure that we're not making those choices in ways that reflect systematic or unconscious biases or just lack of having reached out through the appropriate networks so that we're looking at all the, you know, the right opportunity set. But then the decisions within that set, that's, that's actually what program officers do. And the other role I think that I play, again, along with the program staff and the effective philanthropy group is making sure that we have the right kind of criteria in mind for how to make those choices. So, you know, so that, you know we're, we're actually looking at performance, that there's evidence being used, that we have some ability to evaluate so that we can feel confident that the judgments we've made are the right ones or whether we need to, to either work with the grantee to fix something or shift. Mm-hmm. Mm. And we'll get to the diversity, equity, and inclusion in just a second, because I think it would be very interesting for the listeners to get a sense about that work. Maybe I'll just add, I, about two months ago, I was interviewing for a particular initiative, and the person to a question that we asked said, well, you know, if you don't have, if you don't have a difficult choice to make, that means that you don't have a strategy. And that to me was a really interesting sort of question. And I think gets to this, this issue that you were pointing out, Rachel, which is, you know, we have a limited number of resources and every grant we make is, is trying to make the best use of those resources, which aren't ours, as Larry pointed out, and are aimed to try to implement a particular strategy. And so it is important to think about the trade-offs of a particular grant and making sure that you're making the most efficient use of those resources, at both the grantee and us as the sort of stewards of it. And, and if you're not making difficult choices, then there's probably something that you need to be doing better. I mean, another bias you have to be concerned about is the familiarity. So we just keep finding the same people yeah. because we have relations. So, you know, that is one of the benefits of term limits at, at the Hewlett Foundation is as a way of battling that. So you don't expect new program officers to come in and wipe the slate clean on everything. But it does create space for fresh eyes to be put on something. And so even with some sense that we care a lot about continuity, you know, you can hopefully wash out some of that. Oh, gosh, I can't imagine having to call X and tell them we're not going to give them funding anymore. Yeah. As somebody who came in with that freedom to do work that I wanted to pursue, I really appreciate it. And as somebody who's coming close to my own term limit, I think I also can see the benefit of somebody new coming in and having a fresh perspective. And, and I can see how relationships can become entrenched for sure. I think that's a nice segue to the diversity, equity, and inclusion work, Larry. And I think you've played a key role in leading this at the foundation. Can you share with our listeners some of the key lessons that you've learned in this process and particularly keeping in mind what fundraisers should be mindful of? Well, sure. Although... I mean, in the end, I think my answer to fundraisers is it's not their job to worry about our, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and it's not our job to be telling them how to do it. So, so let me say the following. I mean, the, I think the key lessons for us, or for me at least, were we were not in a position to be telling anybody how to do anything until we had first sort of cleaned up our own house. So it's begin internally, work on the internal culture. Related to that was, and I feel really strongly about this, like everything else at the foundation, to have it as decentralized as possible and make it something that everybody felt some responsibility for. So my job, I'm in effect the diversity officer for the foundation, but it's really to push it back out 
as well as taking responsibility myself for people to sort of think about and work on in their own contexts all through the foundation. And that means very much a do-it-yourself approach. So, you know, we have not done things like orphan the issue off on the side with a diversity officer or diversity committee as if they're going to be responsible so the rest of us don't have to. We could just send things over at the middle of the post. I also tried to see it not as uh, something apart from the rest of the work that we do. It's not a goal like, you know, we're going to get to X and then we could declare a victory and say we're done. It's, it's a part of the culture. Hmm. And so you're always working on it like you're always working on all the parts of your culture. Where that played out in grant making on a bunch of different levels. But the first and most fundamental was, is just as we had have to be concerned in our hiring, do we have kind of implicit biases built into the structure of the process so that we're actually ending up with skewed results, you know, without even being aware of it? That requires self-conscious effort on our part. But as I say, I view that as something we're trying to do for ourselves without necessarily saying to an organization, if you want to get a grant from us, you better you know, make your board more diverse or make your staff more diverse or anything like that. I don't think that's actually appropriate. We have to make sure that we're not, not looking at organizations that we should be looking at. And something we do, if an organization does want to work on its own internal diversity, equity, and inclusion issues, we should help them. And we do, right? So we have a pretty substantial fund of organizational effectiveness uh, grant dollars available for, for grantees who want to improve their own internal operations that way. And that's the way I think about it, at least. Mm-hmm. I think that that question of whether funders put pressure on potential grantees to have their own diversity and inclusion processes, as, as you've just mentioned, you know, looking at their staff and board is definitely something that we hear across our clients and, and some other podcast guests as well, understanding what the kind of appropriate role is in that context. So it's really interesting to hear your take on that. I mean, I mean, I'll give you an example. We collect demographic data on our grantees because we need to know, you know, whether we have those biases in our processes. But we do it in a way so that the individual organization level data is not available to any program officers or directors. We collect the party through an anonymous third party and they aggregate it for us because I don't want my program staff choosing one organization over another for that reason. I want them choosing the best organizations, but in a way that where they've actually looked at the full diversity of potential grantees, in which case the problem should solve itself. And from what we've seen so far, that turns out to be true. Yeah. And I think it's also at least looking at the global development and population program, what diversity, equity, and inclusion looks like in the U.S. is incredibly different from what it looks like in Senegal or in Mexico because we do global grant making. It just would make no sense to have a set of sort of criteria of what DEI looks like because it's so contextual and, and historical. And, and I think you're absolutely right that this is a process that grantees should, should lead themselves. And I, as, as a power user of organizational effectiveness grants, I'm super grateful that we have a particular program that is dedicated 100% to strengthening the institutions of non-for-profits. I think it's a great program. Absolutely. So next question is about misconceptions. And Larry, you've already spoken about a few of these already. So, you know, the, the misconception that fundraisers might have by cultivating you and then you, in effect, just end up referring them to, to someone else who's actually more connected to making those decisions like a director or program officer. And obviously, Hewlett, you know, the Hewlett Foundation is a very sizable and, and you know, a highly regarded and respected 
operation with several different grant making areas. So there's, you know, there's lots of different kind of approaches and, and perceptions maybe about you guys. So what would you say are the most common misconceptions that fundraisers and nonprofits have about your foundation and, and also, Larry, particularly your role as president? I mean, other than the fact that we're not Hewlett Packard. <laughs> um, I hate that one. I'm so happy you brought that one up. <laughs> I can't tell you how often it's like, oh, you work for the Hewlett Packard Foundation. It's like, no. <laughs> anyway, so I would say, apart from that and the one we already talked about, which is people thinking they should start with me if they want to get a grant. I would say the, the biggest one, and this is even more, well, there's, there's a misperception among grantees and a misperception among people who want to become grantees. Among grantees, again, I think we've already talked about it, which is the misperception that really they can't be fully honest with us. You know, we actually need them to be fully honest with us. And that includes both on what they think we're doing wrong and about what's not going well for them. Because, you know, we're, we are trying to approach this as a partnership and we can't, we can't do that effectively unless they're really honest with us about those two things. And you say that over and over again, and nobody really believes you. So that would be one. With respect to potential grantees, I think it's not really understanding what it means to be a strategic funder. So somebody says, oh, they fund an education. Yeah, I'm working on education. Let's see if they'll make a grant. I get, I get tons of those requests. I do um, too. As, as opposed to like, we don't fund in education. We fund a couple of particular efforts within that broad field. And what you have to do is look at the materials that are available on the website to understand what our strategy is and ask whether what you're doing will fit within it and at least be in the ballpark and have done that research first before you come to us. That'll save everybody a lot of time and effort. And it is interesting to me how few people seem to either really understand that or, or really want to maybe because, you know, it's like, I was a fundraiser. If you want to raise money, you put a lot of lines in the water and you're more likely to catch a fish, right? So I yeah. kind of get that. But it's not that much work usually to, you know, we put everything on our website, our strategy papers, they're all there. So people should be able to have a pretty good picture of what we're actually trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's really common to what a lot of other guests have said on the show, which is that, you know, that piece around fitting the criteria and, and just reading the guidelines and not wasting your time if it's, if it's not an obvious fit. And then also the, you know, being able to be truthful and push back. It's something that every, I, I would actually say pretty much every single guest on the show in two seasons. Yeah. Has so, yeah, hopefully, you know, this kind of chorus of, of donor-centered advice will get, get that message through. But, you know, I, and as you said, it's, it's understandable why some nonprofits are nervous or, you know, don't fully understand how to navigate those kinds of dynamics, but it's really important for them to be mindful of. Yeah. Well, my guess is they all have horror stories out there where it's like, yeah, you said that, but. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I think some foundations that aren't as, you know, established and organized as you, sometimes their websites aren't accurate. That happens. Exactly. Yeah. With smaller foundations. And, and, and in that case, of course, it's like, you know, it's worth cultivating a relationship or, you know, assuming that education might mean a number of different things. But I think, you know, while that may be a kind of overarching strategy, but remembering <coughs> like yours that are fully staffed, that are super efficient and, and operationalized, well, more or less, you know, it, it's safe to assume that what's on your website is what's actually true. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that Hewlett is particularly a leader in this, in this sector and super transparent that we have our strategies posted of every program. This is not, unfortunately, I think a common practice amongst donors 
And there might be a guideline, there might be a description, an overall description, but I, I hope that other funders can follow suit and, and publish the actual fundraising strategies, which, which are much more specific. And, and I wonder, Larry, whether people actually don't do that because they just don't expect it to be on our website. They just don't because it's not common practice. Maybe. Well, actually, probably, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Larry, I have my own sort of perspective on this as program officer, but I'm curious as to what your opinion is in terms of grantees that we support. What would you say are the qualities of a sort of superstar grantee for the Hewlett Foundation? Or how about just the grantees you really love to work with? There you go. Um, Yeah. What I would say is, one, a grantee that's ambitious in its goals. Two, that uses evidence and focuses on learning in their work, something, you know, obviously that's all important. And three, coming back to what we were just talking about, that's honest with us, you know, that really approaches the work as a relationship and a partnership with us going both ways. Now, we have to do that too, of course, but I think those would be, for me, the most important, obviously, and then, you know, It'd be great if it performs and gets stuff done. But I think that should follow. If you set ambitious goals and you're really using evidence and learning, you should be able to accomplish what you set out to do. Are there any particular qualities that you would say that a particular grantee might have that make you don't enjoy working with them that are not necessarily the opposite of these? <laughs> well, the opposite of the last one, of course. I, I, I do find it painful. The, you know, there's that joke, especially as a foundation president, about suddenly all your jokes are funny and you know, people think you're really <laughs> handsome and all that kind of stuff. I, I do experience some of that, and it's always like painfully obvious. Hmm. So, and I think that's true for all of us. You don't call somebody out on it, but you know, it's, it's really counterproductive. For me, I find it really, I would so much rather have an argument with somebody who thinks we're doing something wrong and talks to me about that than somebody who tells me how amazing we are and how we've changed the world. So I do hate that one. And then also the, you know, the, the ones who approach the whole thing in a very ritualistic, formalistic way, this comes back to something earlier. Um, I would rather have a grantee Make con- So here, think about my special projects grants, the ones where I'm really the program officer. I much prefer to have the grantee get in touch with me, talk it through with them, let me ask them for some materials that they've already prepared as opposed to preparing something for me. You know, it puts me in a really uncomfortable position when a grantee starts with a 30-page paper that they wrote for me. And I have no reason to think that I'm interested at all. So it's like, let's do this in stages. So those, you know, again, it's all comes back to that same thing, which is just treat me like a person back to the very beginning, right? You know, like how would you how would you want to be worked with if the if the roles were reversed? Is is this what you would want? And I think the answer is usually not. And it's why would you assume that I want it? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would I would agree that I think one of the um, um I, I have never gotten the your your very handsome line. I'm gonna have to wait until it, I'm offered the leadership position at a foundation, but I've certainly experienced sort of the quote unquote dog and pony show effect. And it's very counterproductive to creating that partnership relationship that you're talking about, Larry. I completely agree with you. And and as somebody who has benefited from this, if any of our listeners have a chance to have an intellectual spar with Larry Kramer, I highly encourage it. It's very fun and very intellectually stimulating. I bet. 
You know, I, when, uh, when I moved into the office, Paul had cleared out the office completely. There was nothing in there except for a little framed proverb that, you know, read something like, with a little money in your pocket, you're funnier, you're more handsome, and you dance better too. Hmm. Yeah. I will also say Larry was, I, I believe I was your first hire, correct? You were. Yeah, first program officer, yeah. Yeah, and it was a terrifying interview. Larry asked me some very hard questions, which were unrelated to my job, in fact, but um, related to my area of expertise. And it was terrifying and fascinating at the same time. It was really well, Of course, I was brand new. I had no clue what I was doing. So. <laughs> that <laughs> would have been helpful. It would have been helpful for me to know. I actually walked out of your office thinking, I, don't, I think I just bombed that interview. No, I remember the interview. It was a great interview. Oh, good. Ah, well, there you go. I mean, this is also so interesting. I, I just know listeners are going to be, you know, freaking out at how useful this interview is because it's so rare that we get the opportunity to speak to two people, at, you know, in within one institution, within different roles, and to understand the kind of, you know, nuts and bolts and mechanics of how decisions are made and relationships are built from your perspective. So I, I think, Larry, what you said, you know, how, how would you want to be worked with and I think that's such a key distinction because you didn't say worked for, you know, this is not about that power dynamic. This is about partnership and, you know, from almost colleague to colleague, how would you want to be engaged with? And that's, that's a useful benchmark for, uh, for fundraisers to take into account when, when building relationships. So I think this has been super, super interesting. And Alfonsina, it's been so amazing to have you on the show again. I think just to wrap it up now, final question. Larry, you know, if listeners are going to take one thing away from this conversation into their day, what would be the one thing that you want them to remember? Oh, gosh. I don't know. I mean, I, I guess it's underscoring those earlier points about recognizing your own power on the other side of the relationship and approaching the foundation people like people and having a real conversation with them, being honest and, and so on. So that to me is the most important based on which to develop one of these relationships. Absolutely. And remembering that presidents like the, the Beatles and, and the, the Sex Pistols too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time, for your insight, for your expertise, and Alfonsina for, for being on the show again. It's just such an honor to, uh, to be connected with you guys and to share all of your knowledge with, with our listeners. I know they're really going to benefit. Well, thank, thank you. It was you. a pleasure. Was yeah. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to another episode of What Donors Want. And a huge thank you to Larry and Alfonsina for their generous time and advice. For listeners, stay tuned. There are more episodes coming soon, including one specifically focused on COVID. I also encourage you to check out IG's website and Medium blog for some COVID-specific thought leadership if you want any more insights and inspiration during this time. So you know where to find us, Twitter at IG underscore advisors, our website, impacttogrowth.com. And please do reach out to us if we can have a virtual coffee and, and help you in any way. And hopefully a real coffee sometime soon, sometime this year. So thanks again for listening. And thank you again to our sponsor. And we look forward to seeing you soon. <laughs>